Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 So we're, we're going to do the last two sections of Ash Wednesday. And so, as we have before, what I'd like to do is read uh, Section 5 through and then stop and talk about it in each of its sections. If the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word, the word unheard, the word without a word, the word within the world and for the world. And the light shone in darkness and against the word the unstilled world still whirled about the center of the silent word. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here. There is not enough silence. Not on the sea or on the islands. Not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. Will the veiled sister pray for those who walk in darkness, who chose thee and oppose thee? Those who are torn on the horn between season and season, time and time, between hour and hour, word and word, power and power, those who wait in darkness. Will the veiled sister pray for children at the gate who will not go away and cannot pray? Pray for those who chose and oppose. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Will the veiled sister between the slender yew trees pray for those who offend her and are terrified and cannot surrender and affirm before the world and deny between the rocks in the last desert between the last blue rocks, the desert in the garden, the garden in the desert of drought, spitting from the mouth the withered apple seed, O oh, my people. So the tone of the poem from section four to section five changes from one of uh, struggling with personal emotion uh, to, uh, first of all, a kind of cosmic panorama and then a, uh, a cultural setting for this spiritual struggle. And, of course, the cosmic panorama has its roots in important biblical themes, Obviously, in this first section of section five, Eliot is working with the theme expressed in the prologue to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. But the author of the John 9 Gospel was also grappling with an existing biblical paradigm, and that is that the world comes into being by the speaking of the Word. The mythologies of people at a comparable stage of human development to the Hebrews 
the mythologies of world creation were ones in which great clashes occurred, great conflict occurred, a great separating out, earth and sky, and, and uh, the good from the bad, and a kind of struggle, and then, the, then earth emerges, world emerges. In contradistinction to that, the Hebrew story begins, very simply it says, and God, important verb, said, that's all, simply said, let there be light, and there was light. And so there's a different emergence of the world from the word of God inclining toward the light, bringing to be the light. So the author of the John Ryan Gospel wants to go back and pick up on that theme. In the beginning was the word. This is the Logos. And when we print it, we put capital W, the word. The word is what now, and the theologically, we, we think of as the second person of the Trinity. The incarnation. That which will eventually become the incarnate one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things came to be. Not one thing had its being but through him. All that came to be had life in him, and that life was the light of men, a light that shines in the dark, a light that darkness could not overcome. So again, it is that same impulse, let there be light. And this is the word, the Logos, who is the light of the world and who becomes flesh, who incarnates, carrying on that same bringing of light to the world. The Word was in the world. The world had its being through the Word, and the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not accept him. Now, what Eliot is doing is expressing that same understanding which is to say not because he is condemning present culture as opposed to some other culture. What's implicit in the certain reading of the John 9 prologue is that that is simply the way it works. And what we want to talk about for a few minutes is how, how is it that it works that way? It's always that. That is always the case. He comes and his people do not accept him. So here's so we go back over Eliot's. There are two words in Eliot's passages, word with a with a small w, and that means human expression. And he, as a poet, is interested in human expression, but I think it doesn't just mean words. It means how we become a people, how we communicate with each other. And once that's lost, then you get all of those symptoms that the wasteland was careful to catalog. You see. I could speak no word, looking into the heart of silence, and uh, all of that lack of communication, which was such a symptom of the wasteland. And then there's the other word, the capital W word. That is the mystery of the incarnation. That is the Christ. If the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, Still is the unspoken word, the word unheard, 
Now, let me just go back to point out. Still is the unspoken word, small w word. The word, capital W word, unheard. So that what, what's at the heart of the lack of communication, the unspoken word, is that the logos word is unheard. And that is related to the fact that the unspoken word is unspoken. You see? It, it's a problem of hearing. This is such a scriptural theme, you know, the whole hearkening to the voice or to the word. Uh, we've said a little bit about obedience uh, over the last few weeks because uh, Elliot brings it up, particularly at the end of the wasteland, but the opposite of obedience, obedience means it comes from obodire, to, to, to listen, to hear. The opposite of that is absurdus, which means to be deaf, which is when we cannot hear, we refuse to hear or cannot hear for some reason, life becomes absurd. That's what the word means. One who cannot hear. At the beginning of the fourth line is the word still. There are two implications of that word. One is nevertheless, and the other is still, like to be still. So when he says all of this about, this is a, the overall commentary, is if, if the word is lost, the word is spent, unheard, unspoken, still, nevertheless, and also quietly, poised, is the unspoken word, the word unheard. The Logos, without a word, the word within the world and for the world. Now, if there is a text in English that is as bewildering as the Johnanine text in Greek, this is it. So, as I go through this, I'm not... I, I promise. I don't promise that suddenly it's all going to make sense. Uh, but it's a, an attempt to grapple with the same mystery that John is grappling with from the point of view of a of a cultural breakdown. And the light shone in darkness, and that's a clear reference to the John nine text. That's a quotation right out of John nine text. The light shone in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not or contained it not. And against the word. The unstilled, remember the, up here it says still. Still is the word and the logos. Against the word, the unstilled world still whirled about the center of the silent word. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Now that puts the whole thing in context. That's a quotation from the prophet Micah. And it sets a frame around this, which is the same frame that is set around the John and I text. So let me just go back and forth here a little bit and just hold in abeyance any clarity on this and hope that slowly but surely we'll get some. This passage, O oh my people, what have I done unto thee, is from the Good Friday ritual. But it comes from, in the Micah text, it's Yahweh speaking to, his, to the people of Israel. And here's the Micah text from beginning to end. This is one of the most important texts in all of the prophetic writing, which is to say it's the text we're looking at now. But in fact, the theme expressed very cogently in this text is absolutely central to the prophetic writing. So here's what Yahweh says. My people, what have I done to you? How have I been a burden to you? Answer me. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from the house of slavery. Now we have a question. Yahweh is saying, these are the questions you're asking yourself. And here it is. 
With what gift shall I come into Yahweh's presence and bow down before God on high? Shall I come with holocaust, with calves one year old? Will he be pleased with rams by the thousand, with libations of oil and torrents? Must I give my firstborn for what I have done wrong, the fruit of my body for my own sin? You see that thing? All of these are sacrificial offerings to an angry and threatening deity. Shall I offer this? Shall I offer that? Finally, epitome of that is offering one's own firstborn child. Shall I sacrifice on the altar? What shall I do to make contact with this God, this terrible God of the mountain? And the prophet says, these are the kind of questions you're asking. This is what religion has become. This is what it has become. And Yahweh says, what have I done? The Yahweh of Micah says, what have I done? Did I bring you out of Egypt? Did I take care of you in the desert? What, what is this all about? And then he goes on. What, has, what is good has been explained to you. This is what Yahweh asks of you, only this, to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with your God. And all of the rest of that stuff is pagan cult. Oh, my people, what have I done unto you? in the Good Friday service, brought into the Good Friday service as a way of saying, here we go again. Here we go again. We're doing it again. We're gathering around a sacrificial victim and doing it again. The light shone in darkness. And against the word, the unstill world still whirled about the center of the silent word. In other words, the unheard, stilled word is still at the center of this whole cultic operation, and we don't even know it. The cultic operation has its being in being against the Word. The world comes, in a sense, the cult world, not the natural world, the cult world comes into being in opposition to the Word, in opposition to the Logos. Here's something Gerard says about the, the John 9 prologue. First and foremost, John's prologue undoubtedly refers to the Passion. Remember we read it said he came into the world and they did not know him. His, his own, he came to his own people, they did not accept him. The light shone in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The, the passage Gerard is keen on is the one about he came to his own people and they did not accept him. So he says, first and foremost, John's prologue is undoubtedly, undoubtedly refers to the passion. In the space of a few lines, the essence of the matter is repeated three times. The Logos came into the world, yet the world knew him not. His own people received him not. Mankind did not understand him. In the 2,000 years since they were written, these words have attracted innumerable commentaries. Read them, and you will see that the essential point always escapes the commentator. The role of expulsion in the definition of the John 9 Logos. The Logos is always expelled. It's in the nature of culture itself to expel the Logos. Culture comes into being in the act of expulsion. To, to conclude with Gerard, he says, the misrecognition of the Logos and mankind's expulsion of it disclose one of the fundamental principles of human society. And now we're going to take a more specific look at immediate culture world, I think. Where shall the word be found? This is the small w word. Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? 
Not here. There is not enough silence. Not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. So that's the contemporary scene. Not enough silence. No matter where you go, there you are. Always cluttered, anxious, agitated, unstilled. The unstilled world cannot hearken to the voice. I thought of this thing that I read recently. Um, Flannery O'Connor said, It is easy to see that the moral sense has been bred out of certain sections of the population like the wings have been bred off certain chickens to produce more white meat on them. This is a generation of wingless chickens, which I suppose is what Nietzsche meant when he said God was dead. Just to pause for that on that a second. It's brilliant what she does. First of all, she takes a very offhand uh, metaphor. The moral sense is bred out the way we breed uh, chick wings off of the chickens. And then she turns it around and puts a pun on both wings and chicken. We're, we're a bunch of wingless chickens. Chickens, cowards, wingless, angelic. We're a bunch of wingless chickens. Bred to peck around in the, you see, and to squabble over how much of the chicken feed we can get and whoever dies with the most toys wins. And then, and then turns it one more time and says, I guess that's what Nietzsche meant when he said God was dead. In other words, if we cannot hearken to the Logos, it all breaks down. And we become a bunch of wingless chickens. Well, anyway, I, we're not here to talk about Flannery O'Connor. I thought it was a marvelous... That's one sentence. You know? No, two sentences. <laughs> okay, to the end of this little section here, it says, No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. Now, earlier in the poem, the poet had said, uh, I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice. There is a kind of a via positiva, via negativa process in Western spirituality, which requires that one affirm the image, the face or the voice. And then one has to renounce that. Eckhart says, uh, you know, God help me get beyond God or whatever. Now one has to go beyond that. To affirm it and renounce it is part of the process of the journey, the journey that Elliot talked about in terms of the stairs, the second turning of the second stair, to affirm and transcend, affirm and transcend. And to, to renounce, to send, the, so to send the nuncio back for a better message than that is part of the process. Send the nuncio back until it comes with an enunciation. That's part of the process. But these verbs are different. These verbs are avoid and deny. They fix the process. They're not affirming and then transcending, but they just write it off. And the conduit for the Logos, historically, is the church. And I think the veiled sister in this part of the poem is the church. That is to say, the veiled sister is what comes from the gospel and passion story, but it is still unrevealed. 
it's still veiled. Now, the revelation is when, you ri- when the veil is ripped away and you see it for what it is. But the historical fact of the church is that it's still veiled. Will the veiled sister pray for those who walk in darkness, who chose thee and opposed thee? Who chose thee and opposed thee? This is the historical situation of Christianity in human history. We both choose and oppose. We don't know how to have cultural life without the opposition to the Logos. But we are drawn to the Logos. We are sufficiently conscious to choose and sufficiently unconscious to oppose. Will the veiled sister pray for those who walk in darkness, who chose thee and opposed thee, those who are torn on the horn between season and season? This is that great, this is life in the middle middle range, you see. Between season and season, time and time, between hour and hour, word and word, power and power, those who wait in darkness. Now, we talked last week about season and season, the season of the violet, the spring season, and the season of the purple vestments of the passion story. Torn between the season of spring outside and the more fundamental season of spring, which is the passion story. Torn between time and time, chronos and kairos. Torn between hour and hour, clock clock hours, and the appointed hour. See that my hour has not yet come. That's that sense of the appointed hour. Torn between word and word, the word of gossip and gospel. That's what came to me. Power and power. And the two forms of power in the world are love and violence. Those who wait in darkness. Will the veiled sister pray for the children at the gate who will not go away and cannot pray? Pray for those who chose and opposed. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Quote Girard again. That's my last Girard quote. The distinctiveness of the true logos has never been noticed. This is Girard. Since to miss it, is exactly the same thing as being under the illusion of welcoming it while participating in the process of its expulsion. Now, if you're going to read Girard, you have to deal with sentences like that. The distinctiveness of the true Logos has never been noticed, since to miss it is exactly the same thing as being under the illusion of welcoming it, chose thee and opposed thee, while participating in the process of its expulsion. People believe that they are making a place, an honored place for the Christian Logos in the Christian city. They think that they are giving it the earthly home it has never had. But in fact, they are retrenching the Logos of myth. For Gerard, the Logos of myth is violence. The Logos of love puts up no resistance. It always allows itself to be expelled by the Logos of violence. But its expulsion is revealed in a more and more obvious fashion. And by the same process, the logos of violence is revealed as what can only exist by expelling the true logos and feeding upon it one way or another. So we live in a world in which these two forms of the logos contend. It's an unequal contention because the logos of love will always allow itself to be expelled by the logos of violence. It offers no resistance. The only change that can occur in the victory of violence over love is that it begins to dawn on us as we witness these episodes 
what's happening. And once it dawns on us, we can no longer side with the logos of violence and the expulsion of the logos of love. And we find ourselves outside of the process. And that's what the word ecclesia means, those who have been called out. Let me just go back for a second to the Gospel of John and, and quote something of encounter that Jesus has in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Here's what the text says. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, now it's important, he's to, it's easy to forget this when you read this passage. He's talking to those who believe in him. Now, Eliot says those who chose, who chose and opposed, right? Who chose and opposed. That's the historical condition. We don't know how to be a culture without opposing. But there's something in us that also is choosing. So we are in this historical double bind. So here's what Jesus says to the Jews who believe in him. If you make my logos your home, you will indeed be my disciples. You will learn the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered, We are descended from Abraham, and we have never been slaves of anyone. What do you mean, you will, you will be made free? Free from what, they said. And Jesus replied, I tell you most solemnly, I know that you are descended from Abraham, but in spite of that, you want to kill me because nothing I say has penetrated into you. These are the Jews who believe in him. Chose thee and opposed thee. I know you're descended from Abraham, and I know you believe in me, but I'm going to tell you something. You want to kill me. This is an amazing text. They repeated, Our father is Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do as Abraham did. As it is, you want to kill me. When I tell you the truth, as I have learned it from God, that is not what Abraham did. What you are doing is what your father does. We were not born of prostitution, they went on. We have one father, God. Jesus answered, do you know why you cannot take in what I say? It is because you are unable to understand my logo. The devil is your father. And you prefer to do what your father wants. He was a murderer from the very beginning. He was never grounded in the truth. There is no truth in him at all. When he lies... He is drawing on his own store because he is a liar and the father of lies. But as for me, I speak the truth, and for that very reason, you do not believe me. Now, that is an amazing text. Those who chose and opposed. Chose and opposed. And this text says it comes down to the attraction-repulsion. To choose, but also... Jesus said, I want to show you something about this process that's going on. You want to kill me. So we're all in this historical bind. It's only by virtue of a historical, cultural institution that we even know about the Logos. And that institution has had to betray the Logos in order to tell us about it. We're in that kind of double bind. It's the veiled sister. Will the veiled sister 
between the yew tree, pray for those who offend her and who are terrified and cannot surrender, who affirm before the world and deny between the rock. In the last desert, between the last blue rocks, the desert in the garden, the garden in the desert of drought, spitting from the mouth the withered apple seed. Oh, my people. You know, he says in one place, we know too much and are convinced of too little. The question is, when we finally eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right down to the, through to the seed, do we have what it takes to spit it out? Shall we just chew on that seed forever? He says, those who are terrified and cannot surrender. Part of the threshold for entering into larger mystery is sacrificing, in some sense, the imperial nature of all the intellectual accomplishments. Eliot is be the last person abandon the intellect, uh, but the intellect doesn't even live up to its potential until it spits out the apple seed. As long as it identifies with fruit of the tree of knowledge, then it's always on this side of the threshold, you know, always terrified but cannot surrender. And I just a beautiful image of the withered apple seed and there's a, there's a kind of a there's a little bit, almost aggressive thing in spitting it out can we do that well i mean wherever you spit it out you know everybody spits it out someplace i mean some of us go to our graves with it still stuck in our throat and some of us spit it out and sometimes we spit it out because we trip and fall and it comes out and sometimes we spit it out because it dribbles down our chin the historical facts are that we only know how to come together as culture by being the unstill world that still whirls around the center of the unheard word. And that's, in a way, Eliot's poem is accepting that complication, historical complication. Uh, and we have as our only historical companion, the Veiled Sister. Although I do not hope to turn again, although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, wavering between the prophet and the lost, in this brief transit where the dreams cross, the dream-crossed twilight between birth and dying. Bless me, Father. Though I do not wish to wish these things, from the wide window towards the granite shore, the white sails still fly seaward, seaward, flying unbroken winged. And the lost heart stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voices. And the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent goldenrod and the lost sea smell, quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling plover, and the blind eye creates the empty forms between the ivory gates, and smell renews the salt savor of the sandy earth. This is the time of tension between dying and birth, the place of solitude where three dreams cross between blue rocks. But when the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood, Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still.
even among these rocks, our peace in his will. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee. Well, the poem starts with, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. And in the sixth section, the concluding section, it's, it says, although I do not hope to turn again. The determination in the first section is to come up out of that historical quagmire, that, that uh, cultural chaos, the wasteland, to turn away from it and to move and to break the cycle. But now he says, although I do not hope to turn. Although I do not hope to turn. So something, uh, now he's recognizing, yes, I'm, I do not hope to turn again. However, and that's what the last part of the poem is about. It's about, I think, the complications of uh, living in the world and not of it. In this brief transit, where the dreams crossed, the dream crossed twilight between birth and dying. Where we uh, feel the gravitational pull of more than one force field. And we, we, we dream the dreams appropriate to each. And Elliot had said in the earlier passage, or implied, using this idea that he, he develops in his essay on Dante of the lower dreams and the higher dream, Dante being the poet of the higher dreams and the contemporary world being a place which only understands the lower dreams. He as much as said in the earlier sections that lower dreams can only cease to delude and distract by being discovered to be intimations or prefigurations of higher dreams. So we're in that dream cross twilight. And then the parentheses, bless me far. And that's the first, those are the first words of the, the uh, sacrament of penance, the act of confession, the act of contrition. Bless me, Father, because we're living in the dream cross twilight between birth and dying. Though I do not wish to wish these things, from the wide window toward the granite shore, the white sail still fly seaward, seaward flying unbroken wings. Remember when he was in the purgatorial climb, or what we talked of, spoke of as a purgatorial climb, when he was, when he got to the first turning of the third stair, and he was coming up out of that, what at that point was a dark, cavernous stair that seemed like an old man's mouth driveling. No faces. Beyond repair. He gets to the third stair, and there's a slotted window, bellied like the fig's fruit. And he looks out of that, slotted window, sees the pasture scene, the hawthorn, and the, beyond the hawthorn and pasture scene, then the uh, Priapus figure playing the flute and so on, and connects with the emotional reality of that. Blown hair over the mouth, blown, all of that. Now we're at another stage in the development. Here, the wide window towards the granite shore the white sails still fly seaward, seaward flying, unbroken wings. 
the white sail I associate with the white sail in the Tristan and Isolde story. Bless Me, Father, is only the last of many references in this poem to a condition of need. In the Tristan story, Tristan lies wounded from combat, knowing that only Isolde the Fair can heal him. In the meanwhile, he has married Isolde of the White Hand. So Tristan sends his ring with a messenger to Isolde the Fair and says, bring her and she will heal me. And the sign that is to be given is that if the messenger has Isolde the Fair on board as he sails back to where Tristan is, he will sail a white sail. And if she is not on board, he will sail a black sail. And he has Isolde the Fair with him and sails a white sail. But Tristan is too ill to be, to, to be able to look out. So his wife, Isolde of the White Hand, looks out. And in her jealousy of Isolde the Fair, she sees the white sail and reports to him that it's the black sail. And he dies of despair. What's important to me is the emotional feeling of this. The white sail, meaning Isolde is on board, the one who can heal, and sailing seaward. The healing process is now headed seaward. It's something other than my own condition. Now, what happens when you look out and see that that the one who is can heal the wound is sailing on board, but that the ship is sailing seaward? And the lost heart stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voices this feeling of rejoicing and grieving. And the lost heart stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voice. And the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent goldenrod and the lost sea smith. One part of the experience is the lost heart stiffens and rejoices at the lost lilac and the lost sea voice. And then the other part of, of the emotional experience is that the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent goldenrod and the lost sea smith. I don't know how to put into words. I mean, Elliot put into the best words possible the combination of that feeling. The emotional double bind on looking out of the wide window and finding out that that, in fact, is the nature of the world. Because it is finally the lost heart's stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voices. That is the one that will triumph in this emotional mix, but only by redeeming this other part. Okay. Only by acknowledging and redeeming the weak spirit that quickens to rebel for the bent goldenrod and the lost sea smell. Elliot goes on. Quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling plover. Quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling plover. Now, quail has an interesting image because in the Exodus story, let me just read a passage out of Exodus 11. The rabble who had joined the people were overcome by greed and the sons of Israel themselves began to, to wail again. Who will give us meat to eat, they said. Think of the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. 
Here we're wasting away, stripped of everything. There's nothing but manna for us to look at. A wind came from Yahweh, and it drove quails in from the sea and brought them down on the camp. They lay for a distance of a day's march either side of the camp, two cubits thick on the ground. The people were up all that day and night and all the next day collecting quails. The least gathered by anyone was ten homers. Then they spread them out round the camp. The meat was still between their teeth, not even chewed, when the anger of Yahweh blazed out against the people. Yahweh struck them with a great plague. Now, that is a very sacrificial text in terms of Yahweh's anger. But the point of it is that the symbolism of quail in the biblical Exodus story is those who are unsatisfied with manna and who are influenced by the rabble who, who joined the people. You see, the text starts out, the rabble who joined the, the Exodus people. These are not the Exodus. It begins by picking up on, on these other people saying, well, that's fine, but how about something else? And uh, hearing that, having that cultural influence, one says, well, yes, how about that? Manna's not enough. So the weak spirit quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling. Remember the word whirling? Whirling was the, whir the world whirling because of its opposition to the word. The whirling plover. And the blind eye creates the empty forms between the ivory gates and smell renews the salt savor of the sandy earth. The, the ivory gates are the, in, the, in the classical story, and particularly in Virgil's Aeneid, are the gates between the world of the living and the world of the dead, from which come false dreams. Now, this is the time. This referring, I think, to when the lost heart stiffens and rejoices and the lost lilac and the lost sea voices and the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent goldenrod and the lost sea smell. When that happens, then th this, you see, this is the time of tension. I think the this here doesn't refer to 1930 or the 20th century. I think this is a specific reference to that moment when both of those things are true. When the lost heart stiffens and rejoices and the weak spirit quickens to rebel, both at the same time. This is the time of tension between dying and birth. Earlier on in section four, he spoke of, in the brief transit where dreams cross, the dream cross twilight between birth and dying. Birth and dying is just life. But there are these moments in life. And they're always the transitional moments. And in those moments, one feels the, the lost heart stiffens and rejoices. And the weak spirit quickens to rebel. And in those moments, we are between dying and birth. Not birth and dying, but dying and birth. But when the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away. Now, this is where the, the yew tree, there are two yew trees on either side of the passage between the living and the dead. One is the tree of immortality and one is the tree of mortality. But when the voices shaken from the yew tree, the tree of mortality, 
drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. The voice that's shaken from the yew tree is the voice of, is the voice of the mortal voice. When the voice is shaken from the yew tree, drift away. Let the other you be shaken and reply. Somebody once said of some of uh, W.H. Auden's poetry that when old people lie dying and mutter things that the nurse can't hear, it'll be lines like this that they're muttering. Speaking of some lines from Auden, I think it'll be lines like this. When the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. And the pun on Y-O-U is obvious. This is the time of tension between dying and birth. When the nature of the emotion is equivocal, the, the lost heart stiffens and rejoices and the weak spirit quickens to rebel. It's an equivocal experience. That's all there is to it. But at the conclusion of the equivocal experience is a moment, one prays, of unequivocation, of response. When the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. And so the, all of these series of poems ends with a prayer addressed to Blessed Sister, Holy Mother. Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. I would, I would uh, delude myself with falsehood, not with speaking lies, but falsehood in the sense that I, that I refuse to acknowledge one half of the emotional facts. And half of the emotional facts, and the, it may not be half, we may, may be some other fraction, but half of the emotional facts are that the lost heart stiffens and rejoices. And the other half of the emotional fact is that the weak spirit quickens to rebel. And that that is simply, that's the whole picture right there. To the extent that I only allow for the recognition of one of those facts, then... I suffer to mock myself with falsehood. I delude myself into thinking that that other appeal isn't there and that this, after all, is just a, uh, it's just a kind of a Newtonian world in which you try to get by. Or I delude myself into thinking that, I don't, that none of that has a, has a draw on me anymore. And to me, the key to not suffering ourselves with falsehood is this recognition that, Ellis, again, it's the Catholic small c recognition. That's the emotional experience, folks. And don't deny either one of them. And to me, that's a great gift. And suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Our peace is his will. And even among these rocks, sister, Mother, the spirit of the river, the spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee. What I'm so touched by at the end of the poem 
is this line, suffer me not to be separated. That's so antithetical to things in our time. The spirit of our time is, is to distinguish oneself, or not to be part, not to be lost in something else, you know, not to be some cog in, the, in, in some other thing, to be separated from it. And that's kind of the tone of our time. And here is Eliot saying, suffer me not to be separated. Let me simply be take my place in this overall thing and be lost in it. Suffer me not to be separate. There's a fear that I might wake up one day and find myself in the context of a metaphysics that is not recognizably of my own creation. And what an intellectual embarrassment that might be. And it seems to me Eliot's flying right in the face of that. And it goes all the way back to that lecture that Gilbert Murray gave at Harvard in 1907 or whenever it was, when he said that the artists of old simply tried to become transparent to the tradition. This is the end of Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.